0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. My name is Jeannie Batoni, and I am joined today with Tim Stein, Dan Drake, and Wendy Conquest. And today we are talking about betrayal, betrayal trauma. And in a couple of minutes, we've got some guests that are going to join our conversation. We've got Alan Katz and Michelle Safir, and they recently wrote a book called Ambushed by Betrayal. But before we bring our guests on, let me just check in with my people and see what's coming to mind regarding this topic, folks.
1: You know, so I, I was just going to. What I'm really looking forward to the, the the title of this book is a mouthful, which I and, I and I actually like it. But so, Ambushed by Betrayal, but it's got the the subtitle, which is the survival guide for betrayed partners on their hero's journey to healthy intimacy. And I love this concept of a hero's journey. Um, you know, it's been around in literature and Greek mythology and all kinds of places. And we've talked about uh, a hero's journey as a part of the addict's journey of recovery. And I'm really looking forward to sort of exploring this idea of a hero's journey in the partner's healing journey as well.
2: Yeah. From, oh, go ahead, Wendy. I know you're going to share. I'll say after.
3: No, oh, no, go ahead,
2: Dan. Well, I was, I hear all the time when I'm doing supervision groups, um, people talking about, okay, I'm helping my partners, or or there's a betrayed partner who, you know, they, they've gotten some stabilization, some safety built, uh, you know, things are moving a little bit, but then now what? What happens after this? You know, after we've gone through discovery, trauma, disclosure, and we're kind of now how do we rebuild? And so I'm really excited to hear them share more about the next phase of healing for for betrayed partners, what that looks like. I'm really excited to hear that. Wendy, what about you?
3: Yeah, I am too. So uh, the the experience of being sexually betrayed in an intimate relationship is so devastating and so over and over again i hear the partners say you know can can i get through this any faster is there any way that i can you know move through all of these different dynamics that i'm i'm experiencing and feeling and this is such a horrendous horrible place to be and so i'm really excited to talk to these two authors and see what um what they found to be most effective and um And also hear about the workbook and how to use it. Um, Is it only for partners or are do the addicts uh, are the addicts involved in the process as well? And, you know, how does that work? So, yes, let's bring them on.
0: Alan and Michelle, would you join us, please? There they are. And for we've got some folks who are listeners uh, but the, for the YouTube crowd, you can now see Michelle and Alan right there. And so let's let's get into the book for a moment. First of all, welcome, welcome to. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Um, how Thank did you. this book come to be? Let's. I'm just curious. That's sort of my question right now. Is how did this book come to be? i
4: I'll, I'll take that one, Alan. Sure. So <clears throat> this book was um, really. A result of deep frustration on my part with not finding the the path, not finding the way to help partners move through the anger and um, indignity, and it I took experiential training, psychodrama, somatic. I just kind of grabbed from IFS from every modality I could think of, EMDR. And you know, I just found that it was very difficult to help, to, to move the partners away from the focus on the uh, addict to the focus on the addict to determine their own sense of safety. And it's really hard really hard process. So I don't know if you all have had that experience.
3: Yeah. I, uh, Michelle, I love the word that you, I think I heard you say indignity. Yeah. And so, uh, it, it really, I, the, a lot of times I think the addicts think that this is who their partner really is. And, oh my gosh, is this what I'm going to be living with for, you know, the rest of the relationship. And so, um, I, I've experienced even when I've tried to explain that this is a state that they're in, a very dissociated state, um, this is not who they really are, they don't like being in that place, that it's very hard, and they're not, you know, the partners will be nodding their head, that it's very hard for the addict to believe that. So I'm so glad you named that as it, they they are feeling in in indignity at the whole
4: situation. Humiliation and dignity. And, and they are um, they in my experience they traumatize themselves again and again and again by both talking about it and asking you know the questions and checking and which is all important in the first stage you got to get your the ground back under you but <clears throat> I found that if I don't have some method to hold Bring them back. Just bring them back to self. I in my I feel like I kind of lose them to that anger. So this hero's journey piece for me is okay, this happened to you. You know, hero's journey. This happened. You could choose either to take this road or this road. You know, if you take the road to just staying in it, then you're in it. And for me, it's a call to action. It's, am I going to take this call and go down this road? Who knows what's going to happen, but certainly going to get me somewhere other than in this state of humiliation and shame and dignity and secrecy and everything else. You
0: know, i'm I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking, thinking of some of the betrayed partners in the early stages, especially. um, be, um because it's it's so not simplistic. It's very complex. And uh, often, through the trauma response, we have a, a very large disorganization of cognitive ability. We've got distractibility. We forgot we have forgetting. We have difficulty carrying through thoughts. Um, And so it's really hard. I want to be sympathetic and compassionate to the idea of here we are. We can choose to go this way. We can choose to go that way because that's a very deliberate cognitive process. And I'm, I'm thinking there's a lot of folks who would love the idea of that, but how to live that in the moment, especially when the trauma reactivity is right there. Um, so, I just want to be compassionate to the folks who say that sounds great, and that's a real struggle on a day to day basis right now.
4: Oh, it's the work of their life. Me, it is the work of your life. And you're right. We you do have to help folks to restore their own sense of um, balance, internal balance, and window, you know, get into that window of tolerance. And I have found that if there's this sort of magical, to me, time frame, around six months, that if I can't help them just to get through, to find some way through the anger and the shame, it's just like they're kind of stuck there. And so it is the work of their life. And it it sounds easy. Easier said than done. But how difficult it is for them to be in this in the magnitude of pain. So is the book written then from you know,
0: if you're stuck or in the six month realm and more, is the book sort of geared towards those people?
4: The it, to, for me, it's, it's kind of the beginning to the end. So in the first few chapters, we do a whole lot of uh, crisis, a lot of crisis intervention, you know, bre- breaths and, and cognitive tools. Just want to help them to downregulate. That's our hope. And, and interestingly, uh, I, I asked partners that I was working with, what would they want to see in the book? and one woman said you have to say breathe remember to breathe <laughs> right and so if we can get them just to reduce that the intensity of that uh, crisis of that stress response then maybe we can give them a little bit of information about what this is what is sex addiction and it's real and then hopefully a little, and then the science behind it, just kind of get them up in their heads and, and learning about what to me is an attachment. This is an attachment trauma in my, yeah, in my belief. And I will say the there are only two relationships that carry this kind of attachment, and that's you know, mom and partner you know that deep attachment
1: yeah Yeah. you know when I when I hear you talking about this what I what I hear is trying to help partners to empower themselves where instead of looking at the addict and the addict's success or struggles with sobriety and recovery progress and the partner um, sort of having this experience of if he would just do better, or she, if it's a, but if they would just do better, then I would do better, then I would be healed, then I would be fine. And uh, I hear you trying to lean towards empowering the partner to say, regardless of what's going on with, with the addict that I, I am involved with them or that I have been involved with in the past, how do I step in and how do I take responsibility for my own healing and how do I find my journey through this regardless of what's happening on the other side of the
4: fence? Exactly. how to come to their own aid. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so I'm just kind of kind of just go back just a little bit to go forward. So we, we just kind of try to keep, I'm sure as you all do, just kind of keep people as steady as possible to get to that disclosure. And in for me, my experience has been that disclosure is both, you know, necessary, needed, uh, admitting, you know, directly the addict what they've, you know, the harm they've caused, and the questions. And it feels like it's on one hand they're finally getting that truth is as it's told michelle let me,
0: let me interrupt you here for just a moment for our listeners when we say the words disclosure to some folks are new to our our podcast just to review we're referring to a therapeutic disclosure which is a therapeutic process of planning um, a sharing of all information regarding betrayal and lies and it is a well thought out process a well planned process that includes lots of support so when michelle's saying disclosure that's what she's referring to sorry for the interruption
4: no thank you thank you for clarifying that this it's really important for people to understand what, this, why and how we do this and uh-huh. and So when they finally, for me, when the the trade partner is finally sitting in the room with the best shot of getting the clarity and the information, because as you said, there are uh, specialists, right, CSATs and partner specialists, that are helping to facilitate the process. They ask the questions, they hear what they need to hear, and I haven't work with anyone, and I couldn't imagine anyone that would not have more questions. Every incident, to me, you ask one question, and there's an answer, and there's 20 more questions behind it, and then 20 more questions behind it, because this is someone's life, and, and it's the story of their life, right? It's, it's the past, so I can understand that need to go all the way through their history. And there's a point at which it just, you know, it begins to cause someone harm. Once we know the answer, we know the answer. But yet there is this this force, this energy, this like freight train that kind of takes over. And that's the that's to me, I say kind of I want to throw myself in front of the train. Like that's where we've got to stop. Because you know once that <clears throat> once that process happens and um, i find that people that that partners have difficulty helping themselves
2: i want to just jump in cuz I, I appreciate what you're saying and i know especially especially if there's an emotional connection or romantic connection i know the 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 qu- one one answer brings 17 more questions so i mean I've, I've of course experienced this a number of times too so i appreciate what you're saying michelle i think I think what i try to do and when janice coddle and i were, were writing our disclosure workbooks for us i think some of those follow-up questions they may be directed they may be said with content in mind so specific questions but i think sometimes the follow-up is more a grief type question it's more more of a heart-based you know like the why questions for example why why or how could you you do this and hurt me like this or do you love me or do you find me attractive those bigger questions are not going to be solved by knowing about someone's specific details about sex acts or body parts or things like that. So sometimes I think, I, I don't know for you guys, but I, I, I definitely try to get to the underlying grief questions, post-disclosure and help, you know, really focusing on the partner's grief journey and healing from there. And the mm-hmm. empowerment, this, the internal process of empowerment. It sounds like that's what you you guys are trying to do.
0: I want to make sure we bring Alan into this um, Alan, regarding the book, we're obviously talking post-disclosure and questions and thought and such. But um what is your what are your thoughts about this?
5: Well, uh, I wanted to uh, say at the beginning that um Michelle and I met at a psychodrama training, and um, that's how we kind of got together. And she's been wanting to write this book for a long time, and, and uh, I, I helped her uh, do that. But I, I was trying to also bring the part the the. Betr- the betrayers' uh, viewpoint to some to some of these types of things. Um, <clears throat> what I've found to be an issue is that when it comes to the why question, um, if if you if you go back and say that it's because of trauma, it's almost the same thing as saying, uh, "Well, I have an, I have a sex addiction, so it's you know get, feel bad for me because this this is why I did this." Because uh, because of trauma or a sex addiction, and so it, it takes a little bit of, of time to show them that uh, yes, that may be true. But it's also that conflict between choice. Well, you had a choice to, to do this or not, or to look at this or not, or to get involved with this person or not. And so I I don't really care whether what it is, but you you know you had a choice. So it's, it's I think it's a matter of educating them at the beginning that even though this is the betrayer's problem, you as now that you've been traumatized, you need to do some work for yourself to get over that trauma.
3: And I think, so this is different. Um, so in my CSAT training, we, the, the betrayal trauma model was just coming to be. Um, and uh, I don't know if it was Patrick Carnes I, I, or, or Stephanie, one of them, I, I believe said when, you know, we're, we're changing because the co-addict model really doesn't work anymore. And when, when we were first starting to do this work and bringing the partner in, we would say, okay, you have a sex addiction and then look at the partner and say, but what about you? You're with an addict. So, and the partners were flying out of treatment, right? It was like, they just, there's no tolerance for that at all. So I hear Ellen, uh, you putting a kind of a different spin on this. I think, can you,
5: I mean, I was, you? I, uh, I was told myself, that if my wife is, not is married to someone like me, she must have a problem. Okay, mm-hmm. as the as the addict, I was told that by my CSAT, uh, but that was like ten years ago or fifteen years ago, um, and you know my wife is perfect, so it, it couldn't be possible. But anyway, um, or at least she tells me that. But anyway, um, so what what do you mean that I'm? Uh, well, that so so it's a,
3: it's, yeah. So I'm. I, I think I'm hearing you say and it, it follows up with I think t- Tim's appreciation of of what the two of you are presenting is that the addict has their their dynamic and they've they and it's rooted in trauma and they're having their own challenges right they have to figure out sobriety and recovery the partner is affected by this and she he depending needs to take some I guess it is is it self efficacy mm-hmm. Or you know what is the terminology that that partners can hear that that is that they can that they can actually hear and not and not say hey you're blaming me or this isn't my responsibility right he did this to mm-hmm. me so how do we how do we talk to partners about this dynamic that you're presenting?
5: But it's as if 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 somebody was in a car accident and they they experience trauma or you know, an earthquake or a flood, they would wanna go and get some treatment for that, for for trauma, but trail trauma is a little bit different, but they still, this has happened to you, unfortunately. And I'm not saying it's your fault, but this trauma has happened. And now if you wanna begin to heal, if you still wanna be involved in this relationship, you know, it would be a good idea to get some help with a, with a professional because, as we know, like if the both the partner and the betrayer get help right within our process that we we recommend that there's a 90% chance that um, the marriage can be saved, you know. So, so
4: let me so
0: hear you saying and which I think we all agree in, in uh, the four of us um, is. The partner is impacted by the lying, by the betrayal. And so I think we're all in agreement of it's a good thing, encouraged to seek treatment, to get the support that you need, a betrayed partner needs, to figure this out for yourself, to heal from this. And that's what I hear us agreeing. And Wendy, to come back to you, the word that kept coming to my mind really was empowerment. Mm -hmm. I see empowerment as one of the healing ingredients, one of the ingredients to healing, I should say. And so how can we as practitioners help partners, one, to see the power they already have, even when they feel powerless or that powerlessness in betrayal? And so I think that's reminding people, because when they are so um, understandably disorganized, in their thinking and emotions, it's easy to lose track of where I do have power. And I think that can be a grounding element.
1: You know, as we're talking about this and I'm thinking about the hero's journey, what keeps coming to mind for me is when somebody's going through a hero's journey, there's a mentor. There's right. somebody who's understands the realm that they're stepping into, who understands this path they're on and is sort of helping them find their way. And I and 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 helping them to get to that point where they're empowered and they have found their potential and they're moving forward as as, as whatever the end of that hero's journey looks like for them. Um, and as clinicians, I think we get the honor of being that mentor. Often, I think about like Alan was bringing up the question of why, and you know we all know for partners to ask an addict why did you do this that's a loaded question because the answer is most likely going to be a crazy answer because their addict brain was making that decision. And when they can, they can tell you why, well, I thought I could get away with it. I thought that, you know, oral sex, is it really sex? And so it'd be okay. I thought, I mean, they have all kinds of crazy whys. We can help the partner as the mentor to say, you can ask the why question, but be careful with that. And here's the reason that you should be careful with that because there's this other process going on. And so it's, it's not that the partner doesn't want that information and it's not that they don't have to walk their journey, but that we can step in to sort of be that mentor and to help them recognize some of the potential pitfalls. They may still have to step in them to learn through their own experience, but we can be there to sort of guide them through that process and to help them step into that empowerment through the process.
0: I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to conversations about sex addiction and relationships. And today we're talking betrayal trauma. And we have authors, Michelle Safir and Alan Katz with their new book, Ambushed by Betrayal.
2: So I have a question then backing up, backing uh, what, what Tim's saying. So the, the hero's journey, can you walk us through a little bit more of that, what that looks like from your guys' process for the partner?
4: That's a great, that's a great question. So first, just to kind of piggyback on what was just talked about, I um, use, I see people as a collection of parts, right? There's a part of me that's angry, and there's also a part of me that has joy, and for the person with the addiction, there's a part. That's a part of them, that did, Horrible things, and given the right circumstances, could do it again. But that's not the essence of who they are. There's a person. There's a whole um, um, uniqueness um, of a person, along with the behavior. And I like to use that for the partners. That there's there's a part of you that's taken down by this, that's devastated, that doesn't know how to Take the next breath and doesn't understand why and needs to know. Well, that's one part. And there's a part that's gonna keep asking, and there's another part. And so I appeal to that to that construct to invite that part that may want to look at a different way of healing to invite them into this uh, hero's journey. So and that's back to that dignity and self-respect. You're not whatever the Partner, you know, whatever myth the partner believes, you're not that. You are um, uh, a strong person who's had to adapt and adapted slowly over time to the point that, you know, we lose parts of ourselves. And so this journey, as, as Tim said, it's very much, this is where Alan and I are experiential work comes in. This is active, you know, traumas in the body. And so to we have exercises that sort of take someone through what we think are the important stages. Facing it, we have exercises, writing exercises, breathing exercises, facing it, facing yourself with what in the hero's journey is called the dark night of the soul which is I just have to look at myself and and own how I'm, I'm hurting, I'm hurting myself, I have, and it's not about what I didn't notice, That I don't agree with that, but it is here I am in this circumstance and I've got a bunch of anger and I've got a bunch of anger that goes out, but there's also anger turning in. So we kind of move them through with experiential exercises. And then for me, one of the wonderful parts of this work is they get through this thing and we do psychodrama and we do role. We do various things that help the person to understand themselves more deeply. And so other people who are going through it can really Um, bring some uh, healing Uh, so we invite everyone in and we help them to face the worst face face it all be in reality at all costs and then how do you empower yourself now you've done these exercises now you've gone through this journey you've turned this way you've fought this monster and you know we're the guide and we throw a tool and then you go down this way and then there's another tool. And go through that dark night. <laughs> and now, how do you let it go? Shed, right? Shed it. It's a new chapter, it's a new season. How do you let that how do you mark that? And for me, we mark it experientially. We Michelle,
0: we let me let me take you back here, because um i'm hearing i'm hearing partner voices in my head i'd like to go back to when you said by facing the dark light which i think that's really a beautiful kind of visual um hurting myself which which i'm not sure i'm on board with that kind of terminology so i'm just kind of mm-hmm. listening and seeing but i'm hearing voices in my head um not literally of I'm seeking my truth. That is not hurting me. Yes, it's painful, but I need to understand in a way that's right for me. And it may not be right for everybody else and everybody else may not feel comfortable with it, but I as the betrayed partner, I need to know X, Ys, and Zs. And I really see it again as a manifestation of the trauma of trying to make sense of it for themselves. you know the the reorganization that happens so I guess I'm I'm hesitating with the hurting myself although I'm on board with you about facing the dark night and then the empowerment piece and you know who do I want to be you know that kind of work
4: Mm -hmm. but
0: I'm hesitating here and I don't know if others are having that experience or not but I just want I just needed to put it out there
4: well, I appreciate that you did, so I can clarify a bit. Thank when you. I think of how we hurt ourselves, um, first, these, you know, this happened to a betrayed partner. They, it wasn't invited, wasn't welcomed in, and and I agree. They must they must know what they need to know in order to have a sense of their reality in their world. And I've also noticed. That when, pardons, and we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it, and talk about it. And there's a point, and this is um, comes through the trauma, what we know with trauma in the brain, that when someone talks about their trauma, they're kind of anesthetized, so they're telling the story. The brain kind of, you know, sends out a little morphine-like substance, so they can talk about it without realizing that they're further traumatizing themselves. So the example that I use is uh, someone that has chronic back issues. They're on their medication, they're doing great. Medication, they can, they can move, they can, you know, breathe. On the medication, they can do a whole lot more stuff than they could without it. Right? They're picking up, they feel good. So they're picking up things and they're moving and they're doing all those things they're not supposed to do. Once that medication wears off, they uh, cause more injury. To they have, without intending to, without realizing it. And they don't realize it until the pain wears off. And so when I talk about how we hurt ourselves, in no way is there a, an assumption of of intention, you know, kind of trying, you know, wanting to, and certainly not hurting oneself in any self-harm ways. I think being in this trauma is the, it is the trauma of someone's life. And I, for me, I don't wish for people to be the story of their life. And so that's why we say we got to face everything. And there are some people that have not, and um, don't feel that pain of how how was I not there for myself? Does right. So
0: don't. It does, and thank you for the clarification. I think that kind of reemphasizes to the practitioners who might be listening is um, whatever way we can help to inform our client so that they have choice, and if they choose to go along the path of x y or z that is their choice and we're going to abide by that because they have that right but to empower by information and then if they choose like you said if i if my medicine is going to wear off but i really want to get that yard work done i'm going to go get it done and i might be in more pain later but that's been my choice and so same, informing same. and educating sammy you're looking you're thinking yeah
3: mm-hmm. and
4: what?
1: As, as you're talking about this what, what comes up for me is um i i've i've had i've known i've had clients and i've also had a number of people in my own life that have experienced um uh, unfortunately traumatic events that led to sort of like flashback recalls or really upsetting dreams and was interfering with their their ability to function um and the the pattern was that they would be replaying the traumatic event to sort of the apex of the trauma, which is where their brain kind of freaked out. And then in order to make sense of what it it had gone through, it would go back to the beginning of the story and it would go back to the apex. And that pattern of going through the trauma to the apex, to that, that high point of the pain, reinforces the trauma and reinforces the chaos in their life and it keeps them in a dysfunctional state. And when you ask that person, to continue the story past the apex to the resolution that the brain naturally has a, an experience of, of resolving that trauma. It's a little simplistic, but for some things that absolutely works. If you just continue the story and you are, whenever the story comes up, you just continue it, your, your brain doesn't have same that same uh, negative impact. And so when we're talking about hurting themselves and digging in, what I hear is, if a partner is digging into their story and digging into their pain and digging into details, but they're not allowing the story to continue through to resolution, whether that's resolution within the relationship or outside the relationship. But if they're not allowing that story to continue past resolution and they're continuing to identify with the apex of the trauma, they're keeping themselves in a place where they're not going to be able to function well.
2: One thing I wanted to follow up with that, I, 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 completely agree i think the what i've seen with historical trauma versus when when it's an attachment-based trauma like betrayal trauma you know i don't see i don't see the injury as just being passed a lot of times our partners are continuing to to be deceived continuing to receive gaslighting or other emotional abuse is happening currently so i think the apex of the trauma we can't really it's not like it was all historical it's happening currently it's not necessarily resolved so i'm just curious when it comes to current triggers that may, may not just be from the past, there there may be very present ongoing stuff that's getting re-traumatized, you know, daily. How do you guys manage that in terms of the, uh, you know, the healing journey? Alan,
0: you want to respond to that
2: one? Sure.
5: Um, I mean, sometimes what, uh, what a lot of couples do is that they separate, you know, into different rooms or they go out of the house because the person himself the betrayer can be a trigger just just seeing you know him and um but you know just mo- movies and tv all these things uh driving around town and uh you know well that's the hotel that I, you know so i did this at but that can, all those things can be triggers and so it's it's a matter of uh, building the trust back with the betrayer um by doing some different things, um, being, being in touch more often, um, ask. One of the things that I recommend is ask the betrayed partner, what can I do to, to make you feel safe again? Or what can I do to build the trust back with you again? And so putting filters on your, your phones, staying in touch a little bit more often, having conversations, all those things can help reduce the impact of the, those triggers that, that can happen. Michelle, you have any other examples?
4: Yeah, I, I'm kind of thinking of that stress response, you know, that initial stuff. And um, uh, everything that we can do, grounding yourself, rubbing, you know, putting your feet on the floor and rubbing them back and forth. How do we bring ourselves out of that trigger? Um, this may sound funny, but this really works. If you're familiar with warheads, so it candy. Kids can sours. It's really sour. Sours, sours. Yeah. And so it'll we want to stop that stress response. We stop the amygdala. You know, stop our our brain from telling our body that we're in danger, then it gives a little window yeah. to do breathing, to do, you know, self soothing.
1: So, what I hear you saying is even if the triggers are happening currently because the addict is str- either doing their best but struggling with sobriety and recovery or is just sort of floundering and, and isn't doing any work. If the trigger is coming up for the partner, what they can do is they can use the tools that are available to them to get themselves as grounded and present as possible, not because it's going to make the situation better, but because they'll be able to manage their side of it in a way that's more effective for them.
4: Absolutely. That's what we want is to help people understand their central nervous system and how how you can actually help your (laughs) brain to stop. Um, and, and the survival response.
0: I wanted to ask. I think there was some talk about forgive forgiveness in the book and such. Wendy, Dan, was that you?
2: Yeah, you guys. Uh, you guys mentioned the F word, and I was curious. <laughs> I, I really, I wanted. You know, we've we've talked about it on this podcast, but it's a it's a tough one to address. I'm just curious. Yeah, how you guys see forgiveness in this process.
5: My supervisor used to say it's all about the F word, feelings.
0: Oh, feelings!
5: <laughs> feelings. This is the other F
2: word, I guess. <laughs> I, guess.
5: <laughs> I guess so. Um, I just wanted to give a little uh, perspective on on forgiveness. And I uh, use this. Um, it's it's kind of like the difference between. Um, I think. Um, it's kind of like the difference between guilt and shame so guilt is something that we do that we can atone for, so to speak, right, if, if I get into a same situation again after i've done something and I don't do it again that shows that i'm, I'm making progress but but. but um shame is that i i'm I'm a bad person or i did something wrong and so we we have to when we talk about forgiveness we say that to be able to forgive forgiveness does not mean approval forgiveness just means that i don't want to carry forth that pain moving forward and so that that's kind of how i um i present it. Um, did you have a specific question about well, uh, like I, when to yeah. forgive?
3: Or? Well, so I do. So I hear a lot from partners. Um, I'd like to forgive him, but I can't. Or if I forgive him, that's going to like let him off the hook. If I forgive him, then now he's totally capable of doing this to me again.
2: Right. Or it's pushed by the addict early as a you know, way of kind of getting their self-absolution for the, for the, the, you know, damage done. Which then causes
4: shame to the partner who forgives too quickly. And and the behavior itself is unforgivable, but the person can be forgiven. That's what I like about separating those. Yeah. I wouldn't forgive. What? What's the point? That's, that's not the issue. The issue is who is this person today? Who is your betrayer today? Can you live? So I focus less on forgiveness for me is about self, it's more about, you know, freeing my imprisoned heart. And the healing isn't about offering forgiveness, it's about demonstrating who you are, demonstrating who you can be in recovery.
0: Mm-hmm. That's well said. That was a very. And just for clarification, do you guys, um, because I have not read the book, it's in my little basket, my cart, <laughs> um, but um, I'm getting the impression that forgiveness is one of the topics that's discussed in the book. Perfect. Yes. So if people wanted to find the book, which is Ambushed by Betrayal, where should they look? Alan, Michelle, where would they find the book?
5: You can either go to sanopress.com or to.
0: Okay, he broke up. Michelle, Sano Press, or?
4: Amazon, and Barnes and & Noble, you know, all a- the typical publishers. Or,
0: or, uh, Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, um, talking about Betrayal and all the many different faculties of it. It's so complex. And very much congratulations on the new book, again, Ambushed by Betrayal. And thank you for being here today.
1: And if anything in the podcast today sparked your interest or if you got further questions about any of these topics that you want us to uh, talk about in one of our mailbag segments, please email those questions to us at conversations.sar at gmail.com and we will go into all of your questions at a later date.
0: So thank you all for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with a friend, do all the likes and all those cool things we do on social media. Bye everyone. Thanks you guys. Thank you.